and welcome to Mixed Feelings, a podcast about news, politics, and pop culture on the Relay FM network. I'm Quinn Rose, and I'm here as always with my co-host Jillian Parker. Hey everyone! Hey Quinn! Hello Jillian, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm back at school to work on my thesis because I'm a masochist and I enjoy doing things that put me in pain, but how are you, Quinn? I'm good. I'm still at home, uh, still on vacation for a couple more days. I mean, I'm still kind of on vacation after this, too, but I'm going to New York in a few days to teach middle schoolers, um, which is what I do every January. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, going to be live in New York City for two weeks. So I enjoy that a lot. Oh, that's so fun. Wait, do they call you Miss Quinn? No, they just call me Quinn. Oh, okay. They probably would <laughs> if I told them to. Some of them are, like, really young um but no gotcha gotcha okay I did get in trouble one time because I mean not in trouble but um we go to these different schools and one of the schools um the teacher there is the person who kind of externally runs the program so she's the one who like secures housing and funding for us and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and so I know her first name and we like just refer to each other by first names I also run this program like I'm one of the student leaders of the program um, and I've known her for years, but I was in her classroom and I just casually referred to her by her first name. And she was like, Quinn. And I was like, oh my God, I'm sorry. And all the students were like, ooh, <laughs> Quinn got in trouble. Yeah. I forgot that middle schoolers aren't supposed to know their teachers' first names or call them by their first names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think like, I don't know. I feel weird when I'm called miss. Actually, the other day when I was home, I went to King Cullen to buy something and this guy was like bagging, bagging my stuff or whatever. And he called me ma'am. And I'm, I was like, you're literally three years younger than me. Please simmer. I feel, see, I feel like we both just look like we're 16 years old though. So maybe yeah. it's a good thing that people call us ma'am, at least occasionally. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh my God. Wait, I bought anti-aging cream. Oh my god, Jillian. I had, if you put on anti-aging cream, you're going to reverse puberty. Oh my god. So I just like had a mini like crisis over break. And I was like, oh my god, I'm aging. And my mom was like, yes, that tends to happen as you get older. And I was just like, I need to take preventative measures. And she was like, oh my god. See, I'm convinced that I'm going to look like I'm 16 until I hit like 35. And then I'm going to look like I'm 50. I don't think I'm going to get a healthy adulthood. (laughs) Yeah, so much for aging gracefully. It's just going to be aging overnight. (laughs) I'm going to age aggressively. (laughs) You overachiever, you. Well, this is a good point to talk about the ceaseless march of time because we have hit a new year. Happy 2018. Hopefully it'll be good, question mark. Um But I think we're going to start off talking today about some general thoughts about predictions for 2018, um, cultural and political shifts, what direction we're heading in, whether we think we're going to do a miraculous 180 or we're all going to die. Yep. I mean, I don't know if 2018 can be worse than 2017 but then don't again, say that i can't it say, totally yes. can be i know i know so that is why <laughs> i'm not gonna say it yeah but what we will probably have is a continuation of some of the trends that we've seen in the past few years um, especially in terms of political divides and technological expansion that our ethics and laws can't keep up with 
Those are two things that if I start thinking about them, they will keep me up literally for hours. The other night, it took me two hours to fall asleep because I was just thinking about how our entire economy is going to collapse when we get self-driving cars. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Wait, why? Oh, because a huge percentage of our economy relies on transportation. I mean, like everyone from taxi drivers to truck drivers. And if we have reliable self-driving cars that take over the market, then all of those people are out of jobs. And that's going to Mm -hmm. devastate the economy. Yeah, well, (laughs) I don't... Do you think self-driving cars are going to be like viable in our lifetimes like i understand like okay maybe a few self-driving cars but i don't i don't see a revolution happening in like the next 10 years and then like when when we die do you think everyone will be using self-driving cars who knows unclear 100 percent. like i really oh yeah because i mean we basically so we have some self-driving cars now um that are not okay Not that they're, like, ready to be on every road, because we do have a lot of huge issues, especially if I, in places where, like, I live, where it's rural, and we, like, I lose XM radio driving to school, or like I did when I was in high school. So how in the world are we supposed to have self-driving cars that can get direction signals if I can't even get XM radio? But anyway, um, so obviously there's a lot of issues, but I think especially in metropolitan areas, they're going to be moving in relatively soon. Um, and I think that if they do well, if if the f- initial fleet of self-driving cars um, in more populated areas is doing well and is proved to be safer, then it's not going to be far behind that the expansion spreads and spreads and spreads. Yeah, I mean, I guess that makes sense. I, my only concern is like, say most of these self-driving cars do do well, then what about that one car that, you know, results in a huge accident making people like, oh my God, even though it happened one time, like I could be the next one and then just make people less hesitant or more hesitant to buy them. Um, and then also like, how expensive are they? This is a weird digression to the topic, but I'm very interested in this. So I'm going to keep talking about this. Yeah, those are two things I think that are <laughs> excellent points because, yeah, like this is these are not going to be feasible for normal people to buy for a long time. But I do think companies will have access to them. And even that can start a ripple effect because, I mean, like companies employ people to drive people and if or drive things. And if there are like the bigger companies start using self-driving cars instead, that can still start having ramifications. Um and but yeah, like the totally the first big crash that kills someone with a self-driving car is going to get a ridiculous amount of news coverage. Um, but I do think mm-hmm. and that will definitely be like that'll happen and it'll be a, a big setback. But I do think that it will inevitably take over within our lifetimes for sure. OK, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just my like <laughs> I, 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 I accepted <laughs> this like in my heart a little while ago. And now I just kind of absentmindedly worry about it sometimes. <laughs> Oh, as if you don't have enough things to worry about, Quinn. You know what? I'm gifted. I can never have enough things to worry about. Um, Yeah, and self-driving cars is just one of the many, you know, advances in technology that we'll see in the future. But especially regarding technology in 2018, I think there's definitely going to be so much more of a concentration on the link between technology and politics and technology and culture. Um, Just because especially with, you know, how... Google and Facebook and all of these huge sites can actually like filter information and where that's going to take us in 2018. 
Yeah, I mean, this is something we've seen in the past few years, and it's just going to have a consolidation, I think, is that like Google and Facebook basically own information a little bit, because I mean, they basically own all Mm -hmm. of the advertising, um, and they're so incredibly popular. Um, Like Facebook is so incredibly popular as a platform that it has really serious effects on the way people think and I mean we've seen this over and over again like blue feed red feed and the way that confirmation bias just goes wild on social media and but like companies have no incentive to change that so I and like I don't think that we're going to see uh any kind of shift in another direction Mm mm-hmm Yeah. And so it just, you know, always begs the question, like, okay, so now what if Google and Facebook control our lives? Then what? Now I'm thinking about my uh, Amazon Echo that's in my room. And I know, I know, I know it can hear everything I'm saying. I know Amazon knows everything about me, but it's so handy. (laughs) Yeah, it's very useful. Sometimes you just want to know what to wear and how cold it is. (laughs) I ask Alexa for the weather like every day. That's so funny. (laughs) But yeah, I think that's going to be our downfall is that like even, I mean, I'm someone who has, you know, like a piece of tape over my laptop camera, which everyone should have, by the way. Um, But I still let an Amazon Echo into my home, even though I know that it's recording everything I'm saying, or at least listening to everything I'm saying. So the cognitive dissonance is strong. And I know that about myself. Wait, so you just have, like, regular, plain old, like, like scotch tape? Or what kind of tape do you have? Well, it's actually a piece of washi tape right now, so it's kind of pretty. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I just have electric tape on there because it's black and it blends in. But, yeah, just a little piece of tape, just in case. Okay, maybe I'll invest in that. Mark Zuckerberg has a piece of tape over his laptop camera, and he would know. Yeah, that's true. Also, I was watching um, Parks and Rec, and there was just this, like... Which is like a great link, actually, because um, Ron Swanson, who's like the libertarian on the show, was on his computer or whatever. And then he calls April in uh, one of his employees and was like, hey, like, I have a question. Like, how do these websites know, like, what I want, like what I want to buy? How do they know my name? All this stuff. And um, April was like, oh, like it's advertising. Like there's this thing called cookies. And so websites can track like what you're interested in and like what you buy and things like that. And so Ron was like. So they know everything about me. And he, she was like, well, yeah. And he goes, that seems like an invasion of privacy. And then like the next then the next clip is just him like taking his entire desktop and putting it in the dumpster. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, yeah, unfortunately, I cannot do that because I do need my computer to function in school. But whatever, it's fine. Yeah, this is something I'm thinking about, though, in... <sighs> And the way I use social media platforms, because it's like, I get so addicted to like Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. Um, and you just keep scrolling and it's like, but you, but then you're, you're like actively supporting these platforms and you're giving them your eyes and your attention and their advertising dollars go up. And so, I'm, and also for like my own sake of, of health and productivity, trying to take a step back and not go on social media as often. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think it's just like super hard to do that because the whole reason why like Google and Facebook does so well is the network effect, right? Like having more people on it makes the whole thing, you know, easier. And then once more people are on it, like other people, you know, like it's just so much more convenient. So it's like really hard to like try to cut out social media, especially when it comes to Facebook and um, and stop using Google so often because like what else are we going to use? Like I'm not trying to use Bing or anything, you know? Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> uh, and it's hard though. Oh, this is so annoying because I mean, I barely even use Facebook except like I use Facebook Messenger, um, but I barely even use Facebook most of the time except now I'm part of this writing team that uses Facebook to organize news stories and I have no idea why they do not just use slack but it's fine that's fine like i'm excited about the team it's a great team but now i like have to be checking facebook multiple times a day to make sure that i'm not like assigned a story that i missed and so it's kind of ruining my whole maybe i could just not go on facebook and only go on facebook like once a week or something and i'm like okay okay yeah i remember my freshman year i like deactivated my Facebook during like December finals and I like kept it deactivated for so long for like I think the entire spring semester and it was just like such a relief like not it was just so refreshing to like not worry or not be concerned about like people posting pictures that I don't like and getting all those notifications like blah 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 has tagged you in 23 photos and you having like a mini heart attack. Wow I wonder what that Um, feels like when your friend suddenly tags you in 50 photos. Oh, well, I feel like you are (laughs) judging me. I'm notorious, everyone, for putting pictures up, like, literally right away. And I just tag everyone in them immediately. So Quinn, like, definitely, there have been multiple instances this semester where Quinn probably just goes on her phone and she was like, oh, my God, what has Jillian done? Only a little bit. (laughs) But it's just, like, so interesting to me because I think we've talked about this before, but my sister is still in high school and she's part of that She's part of that cohort where they don't use Facebook because Facebook came out, um, like, when Facebook came out, they were relatively young, so, like, their parents had Facebook before before them, which automatically means that Facebook, like, isn't cool since their parents use it, so they much more heavily rely on Snapchat and Instagram for their social media purposes. Sorry, I just want to share something. I'm going to come back to that point in a sec. But as we're talking about advertising, knowing everything about us, I just looked at the page I was looking at, and there's an ad for a product that my mom showed me on her computer. What? Uh, yeah. Um, like I didn't look at it on this computer, but uh, it's there. It's the same thing that my mom showed me on hers. So, you know interesting that's freaky it is a bit freaky yes um and i mean it's it's one it's one product among like it's a whole ad with like six different products on it so it could be a coincidence but it could also be ai coming to kill us i mean yeah that also seems like a pretty likely possibility Anyway, just wanted to share that little anecdote. But yeah, that's a, the whole Facebook as a social media platform is so interesting because I mean, when we were kids, it was the coolest thing ever because it came out when it was when we were like what, like 10, 11-ish? Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was like an age limit. Like my mom wouldn't let me get one until I was 13 or yeah. however old you're supposed to be. You're not. You're supposed to get 13. And my mom finally let me get one when I was 12. Because I my friends in elementary school were older than me. So I was like, I want a Facebook. Um, and I finally got one when I was 12, I think. And I had to lie about my age a little bit. And then mm-hmm. 
but that like and then I didn't use it for years <laughs> like I used it for like a year and then I was like nah but then it's sort of a thing that like you're kind of not a real person if you don't have a Facebook mm-hmm. it kind of makes you seem like that so gotta gotta upkeep that <laughs> no it's just like so funny because like say your only social media is LinkedIn then like how do you slide into someone's DMs actually no that's false because someone definitely slid into my DMs when on LinkedIn and it was just like super uncomfortable oh my god I was talking to a professor about LinkedIn um and <laughs> he was like so it turns out on LinkedIn direct messaging they have suggested words and responses so you can send someone a message and it and like these like suggested responses will pop up which I think a few different things have like I think Facebook has that and stuff like that um but then he and his friends were messing around on LinkedIn direct messaging for like hours trying to send each other really weird disturbing messages and seeing what LinkedIn would suggest as a response (laughs) and I'm like someone's gonna find these messages and you're gonna have a lot of explaining to do that's hilarious though (laughs) backtracking a little bit I just remember like it's just like funny to me how Facebook gradually changes like they don't it's not like they overhaul their website every other week right they're just like these gradual changes and so I remember like when Facebook just came out or when I was 13 and like the only things you could do were like make a status and post maybe a few pictures. Oh, and then all the albums had photo limits, which they do not have anymore, at least not the 200 limit. Um, and like you could only like and comment things. And now we have all of these reactions that we can do. And Facebook Messenger is like its own platform. And it's like, it's a lot. It's so much. <laughs> Also on this point related to this is just this general trend of like massive companies and consolidation and the way that like like Facebook kind of owns the internet in a way and but it like owns it alongside like three other companies max whereas before we had these giant social media platforms that control our eyes and ears we people just kind of like existed on the internet um, and there were fewer I mean, we had like MySpace or whatever, I guess. Um, but there were really like fewer things that captured everyone. Whereas now we like, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I know it's a ridiculously huge amount of web traffic is directed just to like five websites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, it's the whole network effect. Like more people on it makes it, you know, more convenient to use. We definitely talked about this before as well, but um, just a reminder that people say that we're like the last generation or whatever to have like legitimate photo albums of you as kids. Like everything else now is digital. Yeah. Well, I'm that weird person who takes digital photos and then prints them out. So I have photo albums. Aw, Quinn. That's so cute. I mean, my wall is a photo album. I have a giant photo wall, but I also like have actual photo albums because I like them. And then you can look through them. Um, And then sometimes you break up with people and you have to go through and move all the photos individually and take some out, which is then I understand why people just keep digital photos because it's way easier to delete them. But (laughs) photo albums. (laughs) Are you talking from personal experience? (laughs) Only a little bit. (laughs) So Quinn if for all those who don't know, Quinn is just like an amazing decorator and like her room is beautiful and she puts like all of these pictures up and these inspirational quotes and like walking into room, her room is like walking into like a house of someone who just like knows you, especially since I'm in the pictures. So it's just like, ah, like this is nice. And then my sister's also like that. Like she's going to go to college next year. And the most excited thing 
like the mo- the thing that she's excited the most about is decorating and putting up photos and doing those like clothespin line things where you hang up individual pictures even though that's probably a fire hazard but whatever um and I'm just like not like that at all like I think I have a bulletin board in my room and there is one card on it I'll get you some pictures Jillian oh thanks I think it's just like my Scandinavian style where I just don't like a lot of clutter but yet my room is still messy. I don't understand. I was going to say, I've been in your room. I'm going to call you on that one. Yeah, I think it's just like I'm trying to aim for the Scandinavian style where there's less clutter. But it just results in like me not having a lot of variation of things, but me still having clutter. So it's just, I can't win. Well, luckily, soon a robot will be able to clean your room for you. Oh, yikes. I don't think I would like that. <laughs> Another thing about tech that's not only, you know, used for advertising and making money is just ad- advertising politics and campaigning. And I think one of the big shockers of the 2016 election was that on social media, it just seemed that Hillary was so much more popular than Trump and that she was obviously going to win the election. And so social media in that way has like a weird role in terms of technology. And is it actually representative of everyone? Unclear. Well, I mean, your social media maybe made it look like Hillary's going to win, but someone who is like lives um, in Alabama and was a Trump voter and like only knew Trump voters, like I'm sure their social media made it look like Trump was going to win. Yeah. And that also just confirms what you were saying before about confirmation bias and how like, which is okay. So that's another thing that I think I want to talk about is just like, when you're a Hillary supporter, you're more likely to associate with Hillary supporters. You're more likely to follow people who support Hillary, things like that, because it's like, okay, like you like Hillary. This is what you want to read about. Um, And then the same goes for Trump supporters, right? And so there's just this chamber of confirmation bias and groupthink. And that I also think is like really damaging in terms of how now our culture or our society is changing because it's like we're so partisan now and we're so um, departmentalized and on completely different sides and polarized and whatever. And so it's like, how do we bridge that gap slash is it still possible to bridge that gap using the technology that we have in so far? Because it's like... uh, So I'm writing about, right now in my thesis, like the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And basically my whole argument is that the Black Lives Matter movement is super important. It's just like this great cultural thing that's happening. It raises awareness about systemic racism, police brutality, all that stuff. Um, But the thing is, like, it's mostly apparent in like New York and California and uh, Massachusetts and just very blue states And so the people who the Black Lives Matter movement needs to, you know, communicate the most, like people in the Midwest, it's just like they automatically turn all of that off and they filter anything that has to do with the Black Lives Matter movement out. So like it's not reaching them and it's not having that much of an impact on those states that really need to know about systemic racism. Yeah, and that's all really interesting because I think that like we've reached this point where it's almost impossible to reach someone from a distance like whether like physically or emotionally or whatever kind of distance because we automatically shut things off because we don't have to listen like there's so much that we already agree with that's out Mm -hmm. there so we can just seek that out 
and confirm our own ideas and we don't have to confront other ideas. Mm-hmm. And so like the only way to force someone to confront another idea is if you like literally know them and are sitting next to them and are having a face-to-face conversation because otherwise it's up to that person to go and try to reach other ideas which is like again people like we just don't have the incentives to do that in the modern day and age Mm -hmm. another thing is like when journalists write these amazing articles about which is like very empowering ideas about feminism and like the gender gap and how we have this whole systemic thing in place where women are more like or seen as more likely to take care of the home and things like that based on societal norms and it's just like people who write these articles also just use very polarizing language which obviously makes it like interesting to read and makes it very like it's just like very good writing so I can understand why like these get published because like people who think similarly are going to love these articles but the articles are just so polarizing that people who write them with the intent to convince and persuade and get the idea out there, they're going to be completely turned off or um, they're going to be completely tuned out by the people who really need to read these articles. So it's this this effect of groupthink and, you know, preaching to the choir. And I mean, to some extent, like some people write articles like for their audiences and to like express express like okay this is what I believe and like if you don't believe what I believe then like whatever and I'm just sharing this and that's fine because like that's what that is and everyone has the right to like say that but if you are especially I think that people who are writing for like Mm -hmm. publications that go a long way um, if you're trying to convince someone of something then you need to not not to be willing to meet someone halfway but to like be willing to not try to completely shut them off and to be able to say like okay well like this is what I believe and this is why you should believe it not just like Mm -hmm. this is what I believe and if you don't like it then you're dumb that's a completely different kind of thing Mm -hmm. and this argument just makes me think about oh I'm totally gonna I'm pretty sure these are the people um Obviously, W.E.B. Du Bois, and I think it's Booker T. Washington. Is that? I know his last name is Washington. Yeah. Um, but they had to do, they obviously had to deal with racism, and they just had two very different approaches to the matter. So Du Bois was just much more like, much more about, okay, we need to get this known. We need to publicize this. We need to really emphasize like the racial divide here. But he was all about um, really getting the message out, using protests and using strong language, and then Um, Booker T. Washington, on the other hand, was much more subtle about it because he said, I know that we want to affect change, but we need to do it slowly and gradually so we don't turn off the people with whom we're trying to um, to affect change with, right? So again, it's just like both ideas or both great thinkers um, obviously are on the right track. It's just like how do we sort of blend those two together? And there is something to be said for just like wider awareness of an issue because I mean 
for people who like talk about politics every week, there's also like the vast majority of the American people are pretty ambivalent. Like you get these two minorities who are like super aggressive about their beliefs and then sort of a wide middle that's just kind of like living their lives um and people like have beliefs but they're not maybe not necessarily like super strongly formed because it's just not something that affects their life very much on a day-to-day basis um or like or they're just not aware of like how it affects their life and so they're just like doing their thing and so there is to some extent like there could be some benefits of just being loud and just sharing yourself as much as you can because that can maybe reach those people who would be sympathetic to your side but aren't active enough to like be out there and be voting in midterm elections or to be doing activism and you can get them fired up about something that they're already sympathetic to but again like if your goal is to reach someone who isn't already sympathetic then it's just it just has to be a different approach no yeah exactly and also this just reminds me, or this is just a great link to this topic of America's cultural revolution. Um, Last month in Shanghai, this Chinese venture capitalist talked about how the United States itself was going through its own cultural revolution, which, of course, is referencing uh, Mao Zedong's cultural revolution in the 60s, 70s, which was just like this awful period of political upheaval and just it was kind of a low-key mess. I think it was a high-key mess. Yeah, it was a high-key mess. Yeah, and I mean, that was, like, effectively a military state um, is sort of, like, the end of the, like, the climax point of the Cultural Revolution um, in China. And so it's it's an Mm -hmm. extreme example, and I don't think it's, like, an accurate comparison, but there are comparisons to be made there um, in terms of polarization and sort of this, this increasing opinion Mm -hmm. of populist versus um people with money but not even necessarily people with money like people with education people who live in coastal cities Mm -hmm. uh, and the way that like those people are demonized regardless of other factors Mm -hmm. yeah and also just like relating to that one of these quotes that uh, the venture capitalist said in an email exchange was basically um, and I'm quoting directly from the article that we'll link, but virtually all types of institutions, be it political, educational, or business, are exhausting their internal energy in dealing with contentious and seemingly irreconcilable differences in basic identities and values, what it means to be American. In such an environment, identity trumps reason, ideology overwhelms politics, and moral convictions replace intellectual discourse. So again, it's just this theme of groupthink and just siding with people and whose um, ideas confirm your own. Yeah, that's a really hard thing to confront because, I mean, no one no one is immune to this. We are not immune to this. Like, that's an important part of this entire conversation. Mm-hmm, definitely not, yeah. This quote kind of, I think, can, when you read it, like, forces you to confront um, the way that, like, your ideology or your um, identity is, is taking over your ideas of, like, reason um, and the other stuff that he talks about. But... At the same time, I feel like there's also this like reactionary thing that happens in my brain where I'm like, well, okay, but like if I back off, the other side isn't going to back off. And then like then they just get what they want and then I have nothing. And so like you have to continue the fight because if at both sides don't um, if both sides don't back off, then like one side just going to win. And it's very prisoner's dilemma kind of thing. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. And just, like, especially with whole Trump's campaign about how he wanted to drain the swamp. And this is what really the venture capitalist was referencing, was that, yes, obviously there are differences between Mao Zedong's cultural revolution and what's happening in the United States now, but there are eerie similarities when it comes to this idea that the government is trying to, like, reshape itself and not necessarily along with the population's wishes. Yeah, that's a really big concern um, that we've addressed before. Mm-hmm. We, it's uh, the United States is is built on the system of checks and balances, and I think that like the most scary thing, perhaps for the long term stability and health of our country, is whether or not those checks and balances actually stay balanced, um, or if, like as you know, I mean, our, our executive branch and our legislative branch are. I mean, there's still fights going on a legislator, but to some point they're starting to line up a bit too much. And, you know, our judicial branch is still incredibly important, but Trump got to put someone on the bench after um, Obama's nominee was blocked for an entire year. And, like, that's kind of a concerning action, too. So I... Mm Mm-hmm. And, yeah, both parties are guilty of it. Like, this is a problem, whether it's Republican or Democrat, like, it's just this idea that if everyone, you know, sort of gangs up together and then one party's ideas are just being completely are just being pushed forward and sort of barreling over anybody else's ideas, that's when things become dangerous and not great. And I think for me personally, like, I'm not saying don't fight for what you believe in because, like, absolutely fight for what you believe in. Um, But I think especially in people's personal lives and in personal connections, thinking about, like, how... Like, what is ideology and what is, like, reasonable arguments um, and thinking about how you're talking to other people who you agree or don't agree with. Because I think, like, I, there's there's being careful discussing with people who you don't agree with and there's also being careful with discussing with who you do agree with and not just feeding off of each other to um, make your own views more extreme but to, like, actually stay within what you personally believe is the realm of reason. Mm -hmm. Which is obviously a very hard thing to do because it goes against, you know, basic psychology. Like you want things to be easy and you want to talk about people, uh, talk to people um, who have the same ideas as you just because it's simpler and more convenient. Um, And it's just like, I don't know, all of this talk about how government runs and things like that. I honestly think this is one of the really big reasons why I'm a libertarian, aside from taxes, obviously, but we won't get into that. Um, It's just that this idea when I was taking this libertarian economics class, like, yes, even looking from how, like, what libertarians propose aren't actually really going to happen just because, you know, society isn't perfect and not all of us are rational thinkers and things like that. Like, we're not dealing in this vacuum. We're not dealing with a vacuum. The main libertarian... Um, ideal that I really picked up was that it's not that the government is evil, it's that if the government gets too large, it just makes it more conducive to evil because it's like, okay, now there's more room for corruption when there are more people involved. There's just a higher probability that people um, are going to, you know, do bribes and deal with stuff under the table. And like, I know that I, in an ideal world, that wouldn't happen. And having a bigger government would mean more representation of the general population. But unfortunately, like, I don't 
ourselves. I don't think that we're always going to make the right decisions. I don't think we're necessarily inherently good people. So there's just like all this temptation. And that's one of another big result or another big problem with large government. And I think that libertarian ideal um, is what really, you know, attracts me to this concept or to this political party or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's a big mess out there. Yep, pretty much. I believe in government for other reasons, but like that, that everything you just explained right there, I'm like, yeah. Yeah. And like, even if you're not libertarian, it's still, you like, it's still very scary how much power right now, like certain branches of the government have. And what Quinn was saying before, like this disruption of checks and balances, like I don't agree necessarily with um, Obama's choice of Supreme Court um, justice or whatever, but I don't think that like... Trump should come in and have, you know, get people to block this decision so he can put someone else in. Like, I don't think that's really fair checks and balances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If we don't, if we don't maintain these systems when people we don't like are in power, then like we, they won't be maintained when people we do like are in power. And that works in both directions. Mm -hmm. Yep. We want to have a little topic at the end um to talk about an email that we got a little while ago from an australian listener um and the email is very good thank you there was some other stuff in there we might be talking about in future dates but we did want to answer um, a question that was asked which and i'll just read it out i'm curious whether jillian believes that raising an adopted child is any more or less challenging than raising one that the parents conceive themselves what ages are children typically adopted at and what effect does their age when adopted have on the difficulty of raising them yeah, so when I first read this, I was like, whoa, this is this is deep. And the first thing I did was text my mom and be like, hey, was I <laughs> difficult to raise? And then she started typing for a really long time. And I was like, maybe I don't want to know this answer. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, but um, basically she said no. Like, obviously she doesn't really have anything to compare to because she's only adopted my sister and me. So it's not like she can definitively say, oh, yeah, like raising you was much easier than raising this other kid that I actually don't have. So... I think to answer that, it's just like a very, um, I feel like it's just one of those questions that doesn't really have a definitive answer. I'm not going to say, like, I know every situation is different and every situation can be difficult. So I don't think it's necessarily easier to raise an adopted child or a biological one or vice versa. I think the only thing that makes the situation less complicated is that with a biological child, you presumably have had more control over the outcomes in that you were there from the beginning, you know what the child has gone through, things like that. Um, meanwhile, when you adopt, whether it's internationally or from the foster care system, you're dealing with a lot of these unknown circumstances, which can be kind of intimidating. Like my sister wasn't from a very good orphanage. So when like she came to us, she was extremely malnourished and things like that. Um, and then again, like, when you come from foster care, you don't know if the child has been abused or, and if the child has been abused, you don't know what you don't know the um, extremity or the consequences, the size of the consequences of how that's going to impact them um, for the rest of their lives. So it's just like very difficult to, I think, make this argument that uh, I th still think it's difficult, though, to make the argument that adopted children are harder to raise than biological children, because I think that children are difficult to raise <laughs> everywhere. Like, it takes a village to raise a child and all that. But I do think that in circumstances where you have less control over how your child was brought into this world um, makes things a little more murky. 
Um, and then in terms of what age are children usually adopted at, so there's no really great answer to that. There's no like mean or median that I can really give because adoption is in so many is so segregated in terms of there's no one centralized system. So data on this topic is really hard to collect um, because there's like the government. So there's um, things that happen through the American foster care system. But then there's also private agencies who deal with international adoption. So it's really hard to get a good age. Although I think anecdotally, it's more common that those who adopt um, internationally are usually, usually have, or usually adopt children who are much younger, usually like babies, infants, and then those in the foster care system are, tend to be a little bit older. Um, and I think as you get older though, it's just obviously more difficult to sort of have that, mm, I think it makes the circumstances slightly more difficult because now that the child is older, the child's seen more, and like the child has memories like my sister doesn't remember being malnourished but if she was adopted at like five or six she would obviously remember being malnourished right so again it's just this whole idea of yes um it's better to adopt when they're younger but sometimes you can't really control that um which again makes things a little more complicated that is really interesting and i know that like you have obviously personal experience with this and you also study it academically so it's, it's always interesting to hear you talk about adoption because like you know more about it than like anyone else I've ever met. I was wondering, like, I mean, obviously for you, like there were physical differences. And so it was more apparent from a young age. But if you have um, kids that look more like their parents, how do you tell them they're adopted? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the, if we're talking about the emotional costs of adopting, um, it's just... I feel like it's just so particular for every family and like at least with me and my sister like obviously it was easier because we look different than our parents and from the beginning like from as early as we could understand we were told we were adopted so there was never like this huge dark family secret like it was just a fact of life. I think adopted children may have difficulty growing up if they have not been told that they were adopted especially since like I'm not saying that parents are intentionally trying to hide this fact from their children I think they're trying to sort of keep the storm or keep the seas as smooth as possible because especially if you have other children who are biological you don't necessarily want to be like oh hey you're adopted and then have that you know, barrier or emotional barrier between those who were adopted and those who weren't. So, like, it's a lot easier for parents, especially if your children are of the same race and it's in, like, an in-racial adoption, meaning you don't adopt a child from another race. Um, It's just a lot more convenient and probably a lot easier to just be like, oh, yeah, we're all one big happy family um, and things like that. But then I guess once the later you find out you're adopted, and I think that can have such an emotional consequence on you but I don't think it's necessarily from the fact that you were adopted like in a vacuum I think it just comes from more the fact that uh you haven't been told this information so it's like who can you trust who can you um what other information might have been hidden from you and so I think that emotional cost of adoption is just really difficult to deal with yeah and I I think it's a lot of I mean probably a lot of cultural pressure too because there's nothing like, there's nothing that a, a kid who has, like, no cultural knowledge of it is going to think that there's anything weird or different about adoption. But it's just, like, there's there's there are so many movies 
in TV shows and stuff where like someone is adopted and they find out later in life and it's traumatizing and terrible. And I think that this like adds to our idea that like this is something that should be hidden or like it should be or that somehow it's like a terrible thing to find out unintentionally and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So obviously I can't control what other families do, but just from my experience and anecdotally and reading articles about children who have been adopted um, and like opinion articles where people have talked about how they found out they were later adopted and how that affected them. I think it's just harder in the short term, I would say, to tell your child she's adopted or tell your child he's adopted, especially if they have siblings that are biological. But I think in the long run, you're saving them a lot of emotional distress. Our last topic of today um, is pretty serious. And so I'm putting out a content warning for suicide. Uh, We're going to be talking about the you might have heard about this, the Logan Paul video um, that came out this week and caused a huge uproar. So general content warning for talking about suicide and mental health problems and also idiots. But like, that's normal. That's just an everyday thing. <laughs> so basically what happened is there's this YouTuber named Logan Paul and he's... Let's just say he wasn't particularly charming even before this, but he's never done anything like this egregious before um but logan went and um made a video in the and i'm going to pronounce this wrong and i'm sorry but it's about the aokigahara forest in japan which is known as the suicide forest because of the incredibly high rate of japanese people who go there to kill themselves um so obviously like an incredibly serious tragic thing and it's also supposedly haunted, and so he supposedly like went to this forest with a team of people, by the way. This is a group of people to talk about it being haunted, I guess. Um, but he went there, and he found a body of someone who had killed themselves, which is just... I, like... Yeah. It, it, but he, instead of respectfully leaving um or trying to help or do something or anything uh he filmed it um he filmed himself talking about it laughing about it and i mean i genuinely believe that this is like nervous laughter like humans have weird weird responses to tragedies Mm -hmm. so i'm not blaming him for laughing but i am blaming him for recording it talking about it making inappropriate jokes about like being next to bodies um, and then uploading it to YouTube with not, he, I think they blurred um, the, the person's face out and that's all they did um, and uploaded this 15 minute video to YouTube, which by the way, this guy has something like, he has millions of followers um, and most of them are children. Like the vast majority of them are children and he uploaded this to everyone. Mm-hmm. Which is just, first of all, horrendous um, in itself, but then he did come out with an apology but I feel like it was just one of those things where he was like oh I need to apologize because I faced so much criticism so it's just like this idea of okay so if he hadn't faced criticism then he just still would have thought this was okay like it's just unbelievable oh yeah and by the way his first apology I read it it was just like a written apology and it was literally I'm sorry I made a mistake you can imagine I'm so busy and successful that it like it's hard for me sometimes you know I make mistakes I'm human yeah and I'm like okay it was was the least 
it was the least apologizing apology I've ever read. And I've led a, a lot of apologies recently for men who have harassed women. And you'd think they're bad. No, no, no. This one takes the gig. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he said he was misguided by shock and awe. Okay, if you're misguided by shock and awe, that means, okay, maybe you laugh or you have this nervous laughter reaction to seeing something as horrible as this. You don't, you're not misguided by shock and awe to edit this video and then post it to your 15 million subscribers or how many subscribers he has um, trying to make light of this. Yeah, and as someone who makes YouTube videos, it takes a lot of time. Like, there was a lot of effort that went into filming this, deciding to go in the first place, which is just, like, I, who would do that? Um, to, but filming it, editing it, uploading it, sharing it on Twitter and trying to pub it. And, like, there was so much that went into this. This is not a casual mistake. Mm -hmm. And just, like, the cultural significance behind this is just super jarring and the fact that he was so oblivious to it. Like, I'm not saying that he needs to, you know, study ancient Japanese history, but um, I just remember that in one of my AP history classes, we watched this samurai movie um, and how suicide is so ingrained into the culture because it's this idea that you would rather die than bring dishonor to your family. Um, and which is like pretty, I would say, pretty um significant in a lot of asian cultures but the fact that he just like completely disregarded this or didn't even bother to you know maybe research a few things before he posted this like as quinn said making a youtube video is a lot of work and it's not something you can do in like five minutes especially like a 15 minute one where you obviously took the time and energy to edit it so like the fact that this did not cross your mind once to maybe look into it more is just absolutely mind-boggling to me Mm -hmm. And we could very easily just yell about how horrible this is for 15 minutes because it deserves hours and hours of yelling about how horrible it is. Uh, but I do. I want to get past it just like a little bit to talk about this, how this exists in a wider context. Because um, I mean, one, like as you were just talking about the cultural context and you have to think like, would this have happened um, if he was in America and found this? Like I... Like, I don't think this would have happened in the same way, but it was this very much like, oh, he viewed this as like, I and, and like, I don't think he's an, an inhuman monster, but I do think that like, this was a terrible, terrible thing. And I do think that there were some element that influenced this is in some way, I think that this became, he went to this forest because it was like this cultural phenomena that like this famous suicide forest and so he wanted to check it out and it became um dehumanized to him mm -hmm. i don't think that he would have done any of this if he truly registered this person as human in the same way that he is mm -hmm. and that's just a huge problem like as quinn was saying it's just like he made this a novelty. Like it was like he was going to an amusement park and taking pictures of a roller coaster, right? Like he separated himself so much from this culture that he didn't even think or even bother to interpret it the same way as he would if this happened in America. Um, and I think that's just super problematic in more in obviously a lot of ways, but I think it's just incredibly disturbing to me how especially when you're a young kid and you're watching this, and I think just in general, like I remember in my elementary school like being different was like frowned upon or you didn't really think about 
different people in the same way. Like, somebody would laugh at a name that sounded foreign, which is, like, problematic, obviously. But just this idea that, oh, if they're different, then that means they're other. And it's like, you don't necessarily have to treat them the same way. And it's like, um, okay, so that's a great, you know, foundation for racism. Yep, absolutely. And there's also the the whole culture of YouTube propelling, um, and I mean, just kind of like social media and this culture in general, um, propelling these kinds of things to the front and like controversy gets views and con- and views equal money. Um, and the more eyes that are on you, like the more successful you are. And the whole like, though, there is no bad publicity thing is maybe not true in all cases, but like is kind of true um, because it's even though everyone's saying everyone though pretty much everyone's condemning him like so many more people know about logan paul than knew about him before and if he has a smart business manager then he'll be able to monetize the hell out of this oh yeah like if you have a smart publicity manager who can somehow take the most egregious cases and put some sort of spin on it to make it more likable then like wow you have one hell of a publicity manager because i did not know who logan paul was before this um and also just one of the things he said was like i didn't do this for views i'm like okay relax i think you did I mean, he does everything for views. That's what his career is. And that's fine as long as it's not hurting anyone. But this is hurting people actively. Yeah. And just like how he was like, I thought this would raise like awareness about mental health and suicide. And it's like, um, it doesn't in the right way when you laugh about it and you make it some joking manner and treat, you know, the situation as if it's not happening to another human being. Yeah. And this is something we've talked about before, but, like, there are very strict guidelines to how you talk about suicide in the news. Like, there are established resources on how to handle this kind of thing. Um, and this was the opposite of all of that um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And, yeah. like, if he really wanted to help, and I think that, like, if he wants to help now, then he should turn around. He should donate a lot of money to organizations that are going to do good um, on suicide prevention and mental health. He should make videos that genuinely um, raise awareness on, like, resources to help. But we haven't really seen much of that from him yet. Um, and I don't think we will, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. This is, I, I can't stop thinking about this is like i feel like if he genuinely went into that forest to to talk about how it was haunted then the second he saw someone out there he would have turned back he would have tried to do something to help he would have contacted people he would have made a video instead about like this like terrible experience and tried to to provide resources to help other people and instead turned it into a publicity stunt And so, like, I really don't believe that he went in there with no intention of finding anyone. Like, I think that was definitely on his mind. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he was, like, surprised that people were criticizing him just, like, really blew me out of the water because the Netflix show 13 Reasons Why has this pretty graphic suicide scene and it was pulled apart by various opinion articles and various um, journalists and a lot of suicide prevention um, associations saying how this was bad because it was just like making the experience a lot more visceral and just that was a problem in itself and how although like no matter how I guess inappropriate you thought it was for TV like it was still it was fictional right like it was based on a fictional story and it was obviously 
acting, right? But then the fact that he tries to monetize this off someone, like, a real actual death, just, like, it's just so horrendous. On that note, there will be more information on the show notes and resources for um, how to talk about suicide and for help if you feel like you're struggling. And that is going to be all from us today. If you would like to find us on Twitter, you can follow us at MixedFeelingsFM. You can also find us online at Relay.FM slash MixedFeelings. You can find me on Twitter at AspiringRobotFM. And you can find me on Twitter at underscore Jillian Parker. Thank you for talking with me today, Jillian. Oh, always a pleasure. Thanks for talking with me. I'm Quinn Rose. I'm Jillian Parker. And these were our mixed feelings.